All right, this is lesson three, and uh, Lord willing, we'll try to cover uh, chapters three and four tonight, uh, because they dovetail well and uh, kind of conclude the introduction of the book uh, before we head into what he lays out as six uh, gospel commitments. Uh, They are on the back of your handout there tonight, and so that's what will take up most of the rest of the course, is covering those six gospel commitments Uh, as we think about those. Uh, So just some brief review as we get started. Uh, Week one, we talked about chapter one, what did you expect, and how the gospel begins to shape our expectations in marriage. And so remember we discussed good news, bad news, and response, trust in Christ. And those things just continue to shape the way we view marriage. The bad news Uh, Well, I said those backwards. Bad news, good news, response. Bad news is that, hey, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, and we live in a fallen world, so we should not be surprised when there's trouble or, you know, extremely offended, like, oh my goodness, what is this new thing you've done? No, it's part of life. We have to deal with it. And sin is always against a holy God, and he's provided a solution. And I'm not the solution, so... Coming in with my two-by-four or sword is not how God's going to save the day in our marriage. Jesus is our rescuer in the gospel and in the Christian life. And so he helps us work through our sin. Uh, And then the response on our part is to trust, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to turn from our sin and believe that his promises are true, that there's real hope in our marriages, that he's at work, that uh, I can forgive even though they did that. Uh, so on and so forth. We take God at his word. We believe his promises. And so it's true for the gospel and it's true for the Christian life as well. So that that really gives us scope for our expectations when we head into marriage. Chapter two, we looked at the reason to continue. And that sort of uh, kind of dwells in our response to the gospel that um, it reminds us that God's the one we worship. He gave his son so we can have life. And so our response is... uh, is to uh, worship him, to live for him. And so we thought about God as our creator, our sovereign, and our savior, and how that impacts the way we view marriage and how we continue on. One of the key ideas from last week was that marriage problems are worship problems, and they must be solved vertically before they can be solved horizontally. Um, And uh, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more tonight. Chapter three is called Whose Kingdom? Whose Kingdom? And uh, he opens the chapter with actually a lengthy description of what I hope are two imaginary people. Uh, Maybe they're from his counseling past. I don't know. Gwen and I think it was Barry. And uh, so, yeah, the the story of Gwen and Barry takes up one, two, three pages uh, and continues on through the chapter. Uh, Interestingly enough, it's not a story that is uncommon, or I guess what I'm trying to say is it's common. Uh, These kinds of things happen. What happens is that Gwen and Barry enter into marriage with just all these wonderful dreams about what it's going to be like, and they just can't believe they're privileged to marry this person, right? And they fit so well together, and they have the same goals, and so there's just all of these pie-in-the-sky uh, dreams about what this is going to be like. And then some turn of events. They have uh, children sooner than they're expecting to. And 
Uh, Barry gets a different job than Gwen is expecting. And he's, you know, after they've been married a few years, he's a little more irritable than he was when they were dating. And she's a little more stressed all the time than she was and so forth. And so what happens is, is as he describes it, is her dreams for their marriage just become, just come crashing down. This is not what it, she was dreaming it would be like. And so the story ends with her making this statement, I think it was a mistake for me to marry you. This does not turn out. I don't know that I can you know, keep, keep going like this. And so that provides kind of the context, the introduction to this uh, chapter. Uh, Paul Tripp says this on page 47, her dream had become a nightmare and she didn't know what to do. It's hard to fix something you don't understand and it's even harder to fix it when you think your problem is really the other person. That second statement is uh, part of what we'll talk a lot about tonight. A lot of times we, uh, we think the problem is outside of us. It's with the other person. And if we could change them or fix them, that would get us what we want. And what we realize is that usually it's what we want that's the problem, <laughs> not changing the other person. So uh, Paul Tripp describes how this can show up in other marriages, and I thought this paragraph was helpful. So this is from pages 48 and 49. Unfortunately, many marriages suffer from similar things. The sweetness has evaporated from it. A friendship has faded away. The person they courted doesn't seem to be the person they are now living with. There's distance, coldness, impatience, and conflict that weren't there in the beginning. Sometimes a, a couple will settle for cold war. Sometimes they will settle into marital detente. And sometimes they will nip at one another as if they are looking for any opportunity to express their dissatisfaction. Sometimes it becomes all-out war. Sometimes couples hide behind their busyness. Sadly, many couples just walk away, never understanding what happened to their relationship that once brought them so much joy. So tonight we want to understand what leads from point A to point B. How do we go from this, you know, euphoric dream states, you know, in the engagement period or even early marriage to this nightmare scenario that uh, he describes in Gwen and Barry's lives? What happens and what causes them to fall apart? Well, right from the get-go, he lists two things that are often mistakes in the process. Uh, first of all, he says that many think that the other person has destroyed their dream. So why doesn't this go the way I dreamed it? Well, it's their fault. Their sin, their action, the way they are, etc., um, is the problem. It didn't line up with my dream. And while that might be true, it's not the root issue. The second one is circumstances. Many think that circumstances have destroyed their dream. And that's where we get into a lot of issues with anger with God, because at some point you have to recognize that, well, there's a sovereign God in heaven who orchestrates my circumstances. And uh, so, you know, having kids or not having kids or having a job or not having a job or where we live or where we don't live, and all of that comes into play about how my dreams work out. And so we often blame our circumstances for the reason it falls apart. Um, but again, it might be true, it might be circumstances that kept my dreams from happening, but that's not the root issue. And so he begins to talk about what he calls a deeper war that causes 
uh, those dreams to fall apart, a deeper war. And so how do we see what's really going on? Well, the first place he goes is to this idea of love. And he says this, consider that maybe what you thought was love was not actually love. And he actually encourages couples to think back to the beginning of their relationship. And uh, when they first got together, were engaged, or when they first were heading towards marriage, uh, was that really love? And his proposition is that it actually might not have been love. It might have been some sort of, you know, fun or emotional attraction or affection or so forth, but was it really love? To do that, he takes us to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you have a Bible tonight, you can open there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And you'll notice in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, we'll, we'll start in verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So in verse 15 specifically, there's a little phrase that's really easy to uh, skip right over. The Apostle Paul's logic is this, he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves. That reveals something to us about our condition before Christ. So our natural state of being was to live for ourselves. This is the main choice that we make in life apart from what Christ has done. And so this is the first thing we see before Christ we lived for ourselves. Before Christ, we lived for ourselves. Is that up there? There it is. Uh, this personal kingdom sort of lifestyle is sin. It's what sin is. It's why Christ had to die, to free us from our living for ourselves. Uh, again, I really liked the way he described it on page, uh, the bottom of page 49 into page 50. He says this, sin turns us in on ourselves. Sin makes us shrink our lives to the narrow confines of our little self-defined world. Sin causes us to shrink our focus, motivation, and concern down to the size of our own wants, needs, and feelings. Sin causes all of us to be way too self-aware and self-important. Sin causes us to be offended by most offenses, excuse me, to be offended most by offenses against us, and to be concerned most for what concerns us. Sin causes us to dream selfish dreams and to plan self-oriented plans. Because of sin, we really do love us, and we want and we have a wonderful plan for our own lives. So Sin is selfishness, and before Christ, we lived for ourselves, and so it's just natural to us to have dreams, to have aspirations, things that we want, and it's really deceiving because those dreams themselves are usually not like horrible things, right? They usually sound very reasonable, in fact. They might even be good things that we want. Uh, but what can happen is we, we set our heart on those dreams, and we begin to rule our own world, 
Uh, we live for ourselves rather than living for Christ. So next he shows how sin is essentially antisocial on page 50. Think about this for a second. If I'm living for myself, what I'm doing is I've kind of put myself on the throne of my own little kingdom. And this kingdom metaphor is what he uses through the rest of the chapter here. And if I've put myself on the throne of my own little kingdom, people in my domain have one of two choices. Either they function the way I want them to within my kingdom. They make me happy. They live the way I want them to. They meet my needs, right? Everything revolves around me. And if they don't, well, then I just kick them out of my kingdom. I withdraw from them. I separate from them. And you can actually see two forms of death at the end of this path, right? One is murder. If I'm so set on having somebody outside of my kingdom, I kill them. Or suicide. If I just can't get away from this person who will not adapt to my rule, then what's, what's the point of going on? And so this is two directions you can respond to people. You push them away out of our kingdom. So really interesting to think about. Either, we, either they serve us or we go to war with them. We, we uh, kick them out of our kingdom. So sin is essentially antisocial, which doesn't work well in a marriage relationship, as you can guess. Sin, is or, sin reduces people to objects. Sin reduces people to objects. So uh, it, it makes people either vehicles to get what we want, or obstacles in the way of what we want. So many marriages end up being built on self-love. Uh, we love what someone does for us. We love the way they make us feel. We love the way they help us achieve our goals. We love, you know, being on the same page about everything, right? So what we do in marriage oftentimes without even thinking about it is we just end up loving the way this person loves us, which is self-love. And it's, it's tricky. It's easy to miss. Um, but that's what happens a lot of times. And what we do when we do that is people just become either vehicles to my happiness and pleasure, right? Servants in my kingdom or obstacles of me getting what I want. And so when that happens, he explains it this way on page 50. When your wife is meeting the demands of your wants, needs, and feelings, you're quite excited about her and you treat her with affection. But when she becomes an obstacle in the way of your wants, needs, and feelings, you have a hard time hiding your disappointment, impatience, and irritation. So after Christ, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we then have two options. He says in verse 15 that those who live should live no longer for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again. The word should implies that we still have a choice. He died with the goal that we would live for him, but we can still choose to live for our own kingdom. And so if you're a believer in Christ, these are your two options in marriage all the time. I can live for myself or I can live for Christ. I can be the little king of my own little kingdom or try to be more accurately, or I can live for and honor Christ. And so these become the two main uh, options uh, after marriage. 
I really like, again, he describes this well on page 50. When we live for the kingdom of self, our decisions, thoughts, plans, actions, and words are directed by personal desire. We know what we want, where we want it, why we want it, how we want it, when we want it, and who we would prefer to deliver it. Our relationships are shaped by an infrastructure of subtle expectations and silent demands. We know what we want from people and how to get it from them. We seek to surround ourselves with people who will serve our kingdom purposes, and we evaluate others, not from the perspective of the laws of God's kingdom, but from the perspective of the law of our kingdom. So here's where he turns to some hope here. The death of your dream is not the end of marriage. So when your kingdom comes crashing down and the people around you are not giving you what you demanded of them and it's not turning out the way you as ruler of your kingdom expected, it's not the end of life, it's not the end of marriage. In fact, it's a point of great hope. Uh, And this is where he points to an opportunity to move from self-love to true love. Because the way we fix the crashing down of our dreams is not to just love ourselves more and fight harder to get our dreams to happen, but it's actually to love God and to realize that His plans for us are far better than our plans and that His path for us is far better than any path I could write. And that his salvation for me is far better than anything I could dream up uh, for my own kingdom. And so rather than it being a problem, it ends up being an opportunity to move from self-love into true love. Turn now with me to 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, and follow along as I read verses 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who knows, or excuse me, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So this is what I mean, moving from self-love to true love, we learn that The world's version of love, the self version of love, is my life for me. God's version of love is my life for you. This is what's pictured in the gospel. God looked at us in love and he sent his son to die in our place. His life for ours. That's true love. And he says, now that you've seen true love, now that you know God and what true love is, you can show that love to others. So this is the solution to when our dreams come crashing down. It's not to fight harder. It's not to uh, push harder to make our dreams happen. It's to realize, wait a second, if I'm, if I'm struggling with this, I was rooted in self-love. And I need to switch over to true love, God's kind of love, which lays down my life for others because he laid down his life for me. Now, this is not, uh, you know, it's easy to say that, Right? sometimes a painful process to let go of our dreams and to love sacrificially, to love with true love. 
And so he points out that sometimes we are frustrated with God by this process of dying to our selfish dreams. But he goes on to say how that really points out how deeply embedded our selfishness actually is. If I'm frustrated with God by how he's growing me, it really reveals that I just want to serve myself. Listen to how he describes this on page 54. We struggle with God's plan because at street level, we don't really want what God wants. We want what we want, and we want him to deliver it. But that's not the plan. You see, God didn't give us his grace to make our kingdoms work. He gave us grace to invite us to a much, much better kingdom. And that's what God is doing through his saving work. He's not building my kingdom. He's preparing me for his far better kingdom. On pages 54 and 55, he says this, God's grace purposes to expose you and to free you from your bondage to you. His grace is meant to bring you to the end of yourself so you'll finally begin to place your identity, your meaning, your purpose, your inner sense of well-being in Him. And so He places you in a comprehensive relationship with another flawed person. And He places that relationship in the middle of a very broken world. And this is meant to bring you to the end of yourself because that is where true righteousness begins. He wants you to give up. He wants you to abandon your dream. He wants you to face the futility of trying to manipulate the other person into your service. He knows there is no life to be found in these things. I thought that was really well put. He wants us to come to the end of ourselves and realize this is not how life is meant to be lived. God set a new pattern for us, not my life for me, but my life for you. Because Jesus loved me that way, I am to love others that way. And that's the path of true Christian life, joy, happiness, and eventually God's kingdom. All right, so the second way that we begin to make this change is to see the true love of the Savior. This you already have, so here's number two. See the true love of the Savior and live for the one who died for you. Again, this comes from 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. As we see what Christ did for us, that compels us. Paul says in verse 14, the love of Christ compels me. As I see what Christ did for me, that compels me to want to live the same way, to live for Him. Number three, we then begin to show the world, beginning with your spouse, what His love is like. So as he goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and you saw it there in 1 John 4, once we see what God's love is like, our task is to love others with the same kind of love, to show them what Jesus' love is like, what that sacrificial love is like. All right, so that's a really brief summary of chapter 3 kingdoms and how easy it is to live for our own kingdom as opposed to living for the one who died for us living for Jesus Christ in chapter 4 he gets into what it looks like to do this on a day-to-day basis and so we're going to go through chapter 4 as well and we'll do that briefly and then I have some fun discussion at the end so chapter 4 begins on page 
60, oops, 59. Uh, and so if you're tracking along in the book, 59 is where we start. So he describes an experience he and his wife had that uh, was a big moment in their lives. But he describes it not because the big moments are important. He describes it because there are typically so few big moments in our lives. So he asks the reader to kind of think back. How many big moments in your life have there been that you know, really shaped uh, who you are or kind of how your life went? Um, and uh, you, I mean, you can think to yourself, you know, what are those massive life-changing moments you know, that you've had? How many of, you, of those have you had? I'm just curious around the room. I can hardly think of you know, more than two or three in my own life. What do you, what, what do you guys, as you think back, how many, how many big, massive, life-changing moments have you had? What's that? Good or bad, yeah, 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 good or bad. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all right, you don't have to answer. Uh, the bottom line is you could probably count them, right? So they're not infinite. They're not innumerable. You know, maybe even on two hands you could count the number of massive, big, life-changing moments. And the reason he brings that up is he's actually proving a point that life is made up of little moments. And he even makes the argument that the way we respond in those big moments is actually more so decided by how we've been responding in our little moments. And that the big moments really are shaped by our little moments. And uh, he uses the illustration of a brick wall on page 62. And that in marriage, if you want to build a strong marriage, then think about how you place each brick. And that it's straight, and that it's in the right place. And that even those little actions make a difference in marriage. So this is the way he puts it, point number one here. Living this way for the one who died for you, so that's living for Christ's kingdom, takes daily little moment habits. Daily little moment habits. Oh, I'm sorry. This clicker's not working very well. Little moment habits. So I really like this quote on page 63. Things don't go bad in a marriage in an instant. The character of marriage is not formed in one grand moment. Things in a marriage go bad progressively. Things become sweet and beautiful progressively. The development and deepening of love in a marriage happens by things that are done daily. This is also true with the sad deterioration of a marriage. The problem is that we simply don't pay attention, and because of this, we allow ourselves to think, desire, say, and do things that we shouldn't. And so then, in the next two paragraphs, it's a really interesting read on page 63 and into 64, he lists, I don't know, maybe 50 little things, just as examples. It'd be an interesting list for you and your spouse to read through sometimes, of little detail things around the house that maybe we've stopped thinking about, little loving things that we could do that we have started just ignoring. Uh, whether that's a moment of tenderness before we leave for work or uh, asking for forgiveness for the small little offenses or cleaning up the dishes like our spouse has asked us to a hundred times before or whatever else. He, he lists off a bunch of these and it's uh, pretty impressive actually uh, that he's thought of all these things. The point is the little things do make a difference. 
Now, there's a problem with these little moments. Living for the one who died for you in the little moments has a persistent enemy, which is living for ourselves. And in the little moments, this often results in laziness. Because the bottom line is, we might, you know, in the big things, think to ourselves, yes, I really want to live for God, right? And so the way I do my job and what I pursue here, yes, all of that will be lived for God. But then we get home from a long day of work or uh, a long day with the kids, whatever it is, and there's that little moment of frustration between the husband and the wife. And even though the larger aspects of their life, they would say, yes, I want to live for God. In that little moment of frustration and conflict, right, rather than dealing with it, they both kind of take the lazy route and say, ugh, it's been a long day. We're not even going to talk about this. I'm just going to go work in the garage. She can work in the kitchen, and we'll probably both feel better tomorrow. And so they move on, right? It's laziness. And in that little moment that didn't seem like that big of a deal, right, we give in to self. We say, ah, I don't feel like laying down my life for my spouse like Jesus lays down his life for me. And so a lot of us live in that realm where, you know, big picture stuff, we would say, yeah, man, I'm living for Christ. I want to please him with everything. But in those little moments, we tend to make the little selfish choices because we don't feel like serving Christ in that moment, like serving the one who just sinned against me in that moment. And so we've got to watch out for that persistent enemy, laziness, which just keeps giving in to the self, even though we think we're living for Christ. So this is where, again, we kind of come back to that passage in 2 Corinthians, because the gospel compels us to live as Christ's ambassadors, that even those little moments are important that I'm supposed to be showing my spouse and the world what Christ is like. This is what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians as this ministry of reconciliation, where we're testifying to the world that Jesus Christ is the Savior that God sent. We're showing our spouse, first of all, and everyone else, what Jesus' love is like, and that through Christ there's a way to have peace with one another and peace with God. And so the little moments matter. Because it's part of our task as Christ's ambassadors to put God's love on display, even in the details. Number four, living for the one who died for you in the little moments is helped by three wisdom principles. Three wisdom principles. The first one he calls the harvest mentality. This is Galatians 6-7, you reap what you sow. Okay, now, that's just life wisdom, uh, and that's how the world works, how God created it to work. The same thing is true in marriage. What you sow in marriage is what you will reap down the road. And so if you want change to come, begin sowing different seeds, and as he uses in his ongoing metaphor, pull the weeds, right? So that process of pulling weeds and sowing good seeds leads to change in those little moments. Next, he mentions the investment mentality. And he didn't have a scripture passage with this one. I mentioned 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19, which talks about storing up treasure in heaven uh, rather than on earth. And uh, what's amazing about that is that we can do eternal good in the little moments. 
that with a five-second conversation, with you know, 30 seconds of listening, I can do eternal good in someone else's life. I can store up treasure for heaven. Talk about a good investment strategy, right? Talk about a good way to spend your time uh, and keeping our eyes on the eternal perspective. And then finally, a grace mentality. And here's the basic principle that I need grace, therefore I need to be ready to give grace. And you can take that from Ephesians 4.32, for instance. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So the word forgive actually is the word grace. I don't know if you knew that. It's another form of the word grace. And so God has given me grace. He's forgiven me. And so I am to give grace to others around me. That's the grace mentality. Just like I need grace Others in my life are going to need grace as well. All right. We went really fast through those two chapters, but I hope you get the picture. It's not just about living for the Lord Jesus Christ and everything, but learning to do that in the little moments, in the details of life, in the way that we respond. The easiest way I can think to summarize that is just that basic principle that God has called us on this life on earth, to show the world that Jesus Christ is the Savior. That's why we're here. That's why we're married, in fact. And one of the great ways that we do that is to love others the way He loved us. Um, And so just a very simple thing, a phrase that you can remember in your marriage to help you. How does Jesus love me? Or, Or more broadly, how does Jesus treat me? And then how can I show that to my spouse? Right? And you can begin to apply that to all sorts of scenarios. So even when they're sinning, right? let's say they're just doing something wrong, they're insulting you and disrespecting you and, and so on and so forth, uh, you think, okay, well, how does Christ treat me when I do that? Oh, He still loves me. He doesn't run away from me. He actually moves towards me. He helps me see my sin. He gives me grace and compassion, and He helps me to get right. Oh, okay. So now I have my path forward with my spouse. And so we begin to see how in the details of life, we just simply have the opportunity to show our spouse what Jesus is like and to treat them the way he has treated us uh, with grace, compassion, and love. That little phrase has been helpful to me. I fail at it all the time, uh, but it brings me back to what my purpose is. So... Uh, Okay, my brief example for the week, um, Saturday night, uh, I was, uh, we we were sitting down to watch a TV show and uh, just enjoying some relaxing time right before going to bed. And so we're enjoying the show and I got a phone call, which often happens, it's life. And uh, I didn't, you know, know how long the phone call would take. Um, So I began talking on the phone and she was kind of sitting there just kind of wondering, you know, What's happening? How long is this going to take? So on and so forth. And so I'm talking on the phone, and uh, it happened to get into a conversation that was just really interesting to me. Uh, A friend of mine and I were trying to fix something, and so we got talking about what the problem might be and other solutions we could try. And so you know how like you start to fall into a conversation, you don't really realize how long you're talking. And so while I'm talking on the phone, uh, Carrie had sort of disappeared, right? Uh, because she, she was just sitting there and didn't know what else to do. 
Uh, and so she had left. I continued talking on the phone. She came back down at one point and was kind of like, do you know how long you be? Should I just go read? Or what, you know, what do you want to do? And Okay. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how long. I just keep talking. So I get off the phone and uh, turn everything off and come upstairs. And I can sense from Carrie that, you know, something's not right. Uh, just she's a little extra quiet, um, you know, not as warm and affectionate as she often is. And uh, in, in that moment, uh, I have a couple, you know, options. I can self-justify, you know, I can put myself on the throne and think to myself, well, uh, what was I supposed to do, right? I mean, I had to take the phone call. Uh, you know, it's not wrong to talk on the phone. And what would she have to be upset about, right? I mean, this is, you know. Um, and, and that was, to be honest with you, the, the first path that I took, right? Um, and so a little more time passed, and uh, then it kind of occurred to me, okay, that's not the right path. I need to humble myself and invite you know, her input, find out what I did. Maybe I'm missing something. And so she began to explain the, the view of this scenario from her perspective, right? And that you know, we were spending some time together, and then suddenly I just ignored her, which was very true. Uh, and I hadn't even seen that, right? You know, I was just kind of like, well, I got a phone call. I got to take it, right? Of course, you know. And so she helped me see that. And, uh, and the thought that kept running through my head was, on the one hand, I wanted to tell myself, you really didn't do anything wrong. I mean, it's just a phone call. She can just get over it. And maybe she could. And that's fine if that's the way the Lord wants to work in her heart. But what's really important in that moment is what God's trying to do in my heart. And... It just occurred to me, you know, it's just the thought running through my head. How would Jesus have loved her in that moment? And he probably wouldn't have ignored her. Probably not. I mean, I can't say for sure. But to at least say something to her, like, hey, you know, we're getting into something. Do you mind if I talk a little longer on the phone? And are you okay reading? Or do you want me to just call them back later? Or at least touching base, at least letting her know that, hey, I'm present, I'm here, I'm with you. Is it all right if I continue this conversation? Or I can just call back another time? And, uh, and so I said, you know what? You're right. I was not a, a loving, tender, affectionate husband in that moment. And, uh, and so asked her forgiveness. We reconciled. She acknowledged she was probably oversensitive to it and so forth. But the point is, each of us had the responsibility to make sure I'm not sitting on the throne trying to demand that everybody else get in line with me self-justifying, oh, come on, there's no big deal, but actually listening to my spouse and then saying, okay, Lord, what would Jesus, how would he respond in this scenario? How do you show love in this case? And no matter how the other one's acting, I move towards her with compassion, a listening ear that's ready to be humbled by what she might have to say and uh, to reconcile with her. So I share those. They're... They're a little embarrassing every week. I share them not to just make it sound like we have a great marriage. Um, I'm thankful for our marriage, but we, str we struggle, right? I mean, we're two sinners living in the same house, and I want you to know that, and I want you to know that God's grace is present and helpful, and we need Him desperately. And, um, yeah, that uh, if you look to the Lord in those moments, He really does give help and... To, to, to walk through those with humility and grace 
and to reconcile. So uh, I put on your notes um, the rest of the book. It's under the heading Gospel Commitments. So the, the section that comes before that is called Gospel Foundations. That is my reinterpretation of his first four chapters. Um, he's kind of providing the foundation. And so I just threw that in there for you if it helps your brain organize all of this. He didn't title his chapters that way, but he's sort of laying the foundation and how the gospel shapes our expectations, shapes our reason to continue, teaches me what true love is, and then teaches me to live for the one who died for me. So that's where we've been. And starting next week, we'll start with commitment one. Now in the last nine minutes, uh, I have a little activity. It's super easy, but hopefully it, uh, it uh, is effective. And so, um, let's see here. I'll just pass these around real quick. If you want to get in some small groups uh, and read the first couple... What's that? Oh, sure, if you don't mind helping, that'd be great. Thank you. There's some. Uh, so, yeah, if you read, read the first couple paragraphs with your group and then um, answer the... There's a little quiz below that you can... Uh, Try it. It's like the easiest quiz in the world, so it's super obvious, but I don't know. It's a good thing I'm not a teacher. Everyone would get A pluses. Oh, I've got plenty. Yeah, got plenty. Mm -hmm. All right, so yeah, work through the first couple paragraphs and then take the quiz at the bottom. Anybody else need one? Sorry, Dusty. Oh, and uh, when your group is finished, you can just be dismissed. So thanks for being here tonight.